Well, good morning. It is uh, so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. As you make your way back to your seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 5. Uh, before we get into the Word, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to make Himself known to us and stir our hearts and our affections for Him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for today. Lord, as we learn in the book of Daniel that you hold our life and our breath. It is in your hands and you control the whole course of our lives. Lord, in the Psalms, it said, what is man that you are mindful of him? James says, we're just a vapor. And Lord, it is so humbling and at the same time so awe-inspiring, humbling of who we are and awe-inspiring of who you are. And Lord, I do pray that as we open up your word, can we just be captivated by you? Can we just be overwhelmed by you as we see and behold your glory as you confront the sin of King Belshazzar? May we see the terrifyingness of it, and may we also see the kindness in it. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, open up our ears, our hearts, and our minds. Make yourself known to us, Lord. And and I pray for everybody in this room. You know each and every one in here. You know what they're thinking, how they're feeling. You know what they're going through, what they're going to go through, what they've experienced, and what they're going to experience. Can you meet them where they are? Can you minister to them in such a way that leads to transformation? May they behold your glory. May they see their desperate need for you. May they repent of their sins and turn to you. And Lord, may we walk out of here saying, what a wonderful Savior we have who took our sins and exchanged our wickedness for his righteousness. So come, Lord, and speak to us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So we're continuing our series through the book of Daniel. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 5, verses 1. Now, as we've studied the, the, the book of Daniel, a major truth that we have discovered in Daniel, uh, we saw it in chapter 4, um, and we're even going to see it in chapter 5, and the major truth is that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives to whoever He wants. In other words, that the Lord is sovereign. He is the one who determines who rules and who does not. He is the one who determines who will have a kingdom and who will not. And he gives kingdoms and he takes away kingdoms. And this is what we've seen. And this is what we're going to see today. Now, as we get to chapter 5, you're going to immediately notice the flow of the book is a little obscure. Because the very first four chapters we've dealt with King Nebuchadnezzar and then we come to chapter 5 and all of a sudden we're dealing with another king, King Belshazzar. That means there must be a gap between the rule and reign of King Nebuchadnezzar and then King Belshazzar and you're wondering what in the world happened during that time frame. Well, historians tell us this gap is about a gap of 20 years and a lot has happened I don't have time to go through the history but basically King Nebuchadnezzar died his son took over there's a bunch of conspiracy a bunch of killing of kings and then we finally land with King Belshazzar and so the question is okay well why does Daniel not give us these kinds of details and we need to remind ourselves of who was the author and why did he write this book. And so Daniel wrote this book, and the purpose of him writing this book was not to give us a history lesson on the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, but rather he was writing this book to the Hebrew people. He was writing this to encourage the people of God who were defeated, who were now in exile, and encouraging them that even though they might not see the hands of God, the Lord has not abandoned them. The Lord is working and he's accomplishing his purposes. Even though you might not be able to trace his hands, there are glimpses where you see the Lord working. So in the meantime, trust him. Remain faithful to him. Our Lord is sovereign and he keeps his promises. And so today as we get to Daniel chapter 5, we're going to see that King Belshazzar is going to learn the hard way, that the writing 
is on the wall. That the Most High God, He is the true ruler over all the kingdoms. And He certainly gives kingdoms to whomever He wants, and He takes them away from whomever He wants. So let's look at our story and let's see what we can learn uh, from our text. Daniel chapter 5 verse 1 says this, King Belshazzar had a, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels from his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken them from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wise concubines, could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives and concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So, so let's stop here and just unpack this a little bit. Look a little bit about context and see what we can learn from this. Now, King Belshazzar is the last Babylonian king. And he decides to throw a big party even though Darius the Mede is in the process of invading his country. Now you're like, well, how do you know it? Well, I know that at the end of chapter 5, we're going to see Babylon fall by King Darius. However, what historians tell us is that the Medo-Persian army has already invaded a city 50 miles from Babylon only two days ago. So instead of this king preparing to defend his kingdom, what does he decide to do? He decides to throw a big party. And maybe he was throwing this party to celebrate the invincibility of Babylon because Babylon was known as a great city with walls that were about 8 feet wide and 20 to 30 feet high. The city almost seemed impenetrable and no army could invade it. At least that's what he was thinking and that's what they were celebrating and so with a thousand in attendance king Belshazzar did something that no other former king of babylon did the first thing he did that no other king of babylon would do was drink in the presence of drink wine in the presence of the people's subject that's something the king never did and what did he do he sets the example of drunkenness sensuality and revelry and then on top of it, he takes all the sacred vassals from the temple and he uses them in defiance. Now, we have to remember that these vessels that were taken from the Babylonian temple, which was originally taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, by them transferring it out of the temple of God into the Babylonian temple, has already kind of defied these vessels. But what does King Belshazzar do? He uses them, which means he continues in the defiance of it. But then they praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And in other words, not only are they defying it, but it's also an ultimate display of blasphemy and idolatry saying, Our God, the gods of Babylon, is greater than the God of Judah thinking that their gods is superior. And now we're thinking to ourselves, like, what in the world is this guy doing? What in the world is wrong with this guy? But when you study the whole Bible, we are reminded of a prophecy of Isaiah. A hundred years ago, before this event took place, Isaiah prophesied the downfall of Babylon. And this is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 47, verse 10 to 11. You can just write down the reference and maybe read it later this week. This is what Isaiah says. A hundred years before this party took place, you were secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and knowledge led you astray. You said to yourself, I am, there is no one else. But disaster will happen to you. You will not know how to avert it and, and it will fall on you, but you will unable to ward it off. Devastation will happen to you suddenly and unexpectedly. 
In other words, what Belshazzar was doing is no one is seeing what we're doing behind closed doors. Look at all this, this drunken orgy that is taking place. What bad could happen to us? Let us defy God. And Isaiah says, you fool. You think you're so powerful and devastation is going to come on you like this and there's nothing you can do to stop it. In other words, what Isaiah is saying to Belshazzar 100 years earlier, dude, the Lord sees you. The Lord sees your sins. He sees your actions. He sees what's going on in your heart. And I think we can learn this for ourselves. Like if you're taking notes, the very first thing we can learn in our story is that the Lord sees our sins. Just like in our text, the Lord saw the sin of Balthasar. He saw this wicked party. He saw their defiance and their mocking. He saw what happened behind closed doors. He even sees what's going on in their hearts as they're using these vessels defying God. The Lord sees our sin. He knows what's going on in our hearts. He sees our grumbling, our gossiping, our slandering. He sees the wickedness that we are plotting. He sees the idols that we have a tendency to bow down to. The Lord sees it. He sees our sin. And because he sees our sin and he saw the sin of Belshazzar, is he going to do nothing? No. The Lord will act. And in our text, we're going to see the wisdom of Proverbs uh, unfold. Proverbs 6, verse 12 to 13 says this, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes around speaking dishonestly, winking with his eyes, signaling with his feet, gesturing with his fingers, always plotting evil with perversity in his heart. He stirs up trouble. In other words, what the person who wrote this proverb says, like, look at this wicked person. He does all these sly things, a little winking, a little signal, a little thing behind closed doors thinking he is some wise aleck and yet he says therefore calamity will strike him suddenly and he'll be shattered instantly beyond recovery in other words Belshazzar a wicked person signaling with his hands his feet winking thinking he's going to escape devastation because he is the most powerful man in the world and Isaiah and the man who wrote down Proverbs said, you fool, devastation is coming upon you. Why? Because the Lord saw his sin. And for us personally, the Lord sees your sin. He knows your heart. There is nothing you can hide from him. So let's see what Belshazzar is about to learn. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he swelled himself and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. It's kind of ironic is that the king is as drunk as a skunk and immediately he comes to his senses. He sees the finger of a hand drawing on the wall, the very finger that wrote on the tablets and gave God's people the Ten Commandments now is writing on the wall. And somehow Belshazzar knows that this writing is not a good thing for this writing signifies immediate judgment. And he comes to his senses and he is terrified. And, and here's the second thing we learn. Not only does the Lord see our sin, but the Lord, if you're taking notes, confronts our sin. He confronts it. He doesn't just see it, but he confronts it. What do we see in our text? 
We see Belshazzar and his sin. And what does the Lord do? The Lord confronts it. He writes on the wall. And we see that Belshazzar both inwardly and outwardly now becomes undone. Filled with fear. Knowing that this writing cannot be a good thing. And so Belshazzar trembles as the writing continues on the wall. And so here's a question. What do you do in moments like this when the Lord confronts you in your sin? What did Belshazzar do when the Lord confronted him in his sin? You turn to religion, of course, and that's what Belshazzar did. Who did he call in? He called in the wise men, the mediums, the Chaldeans, the diviners, the spiritists to help him out. And yet they were unable to help him out, which meant Belshazzar continued in his trembling. The religion that he turned to ended up being useless and helpless. And and if you think about this, The Lord's confrontation of Belshazzar's sin is both troubling and kind. The Lord's confrontation of our sin is both terrifying, troubling, and also kind. It's troubling and terrifying. Why? Because in the process of the Lord confronting us and our sin, He's exposing to us our helplessness and our uselessness. And the things that we put our hope in, now all of a sudden is letting us down. And yet it is gracious. Why? Because in a sense, it's exposing and forcing us to deal with our helplessness and our uselessness. And maybe it will open up our eyes that will lead to repentance. And so this is what we see that the Lord does to Belshazzar. He's exposing his helplessness, his uselessness. Here's a man who's the most powerful man in the world, throwing a party while another army is invading him, thinking, oh, they're a bunch of gnats. We'll just take him out. No big deal. Celebrating doing all these wicked acts, and the Lord confronts him. The Lord exposes his sin and shows him how helpless and how useless he is. And it causes him to be terrified and trembling and fear. In other words, there's nowhere to turn. What do I do? But if he could only see, if, the Lord, if he can only open up his eyes and turn to the Lord and repent. Like, one of the things that we have to realize is how gracious and terrifying it is that the Lord confronts us in our sin. I know for many of you, you're thinking, well, that's just judgmental, that's just bad. No, it's a gracious thing. You know what's one of the worst things that possibly can happen to you? Is when the Lord gives you over to your sin. And in other words, if the Lord says, hey, you want money? You want to bow down to the idol of money? You want money to fulfill? You want money to make you happy? You want money to give you security? Have at it. Here you go. Here's some more money for you. Put your hope in it. Bow down to it. Let's see how far it gets you. Like that is one of the worst things, the worst judgment that the Lord can do to you. It's kind of like this parable uh, that Andy read for us during our time of of confession where Jesus talked about a rich fool. What did he do? He provided such an abundant crop. He had so much money. It was ridiculous. And what is he going to do with all of his stuff? I got to build more storage. I got to take care of my stuff because I can't have enough and then I can kick back and relax. And all my hope is in the security that I have created. And yet, what did the Lord say? You fool. The thing that you thought will make you happy, the thing you thought that will provide for you security and power and comfort is taken away like that and you will not be able to enjoy it because it's absolutely useless and helpless. And what do you have now? Nothing other than destruction. And my point with it is, is what a gracious thing When the Lord sees your sin, he confronts it. Because in the confrontation of it, he shows you how helpless and useless you are and the things you're putting your hope in. And it is a gracious moment and at the same time, a terrifying moment. 
And this is what he's doing to Belshazzar. If Belshazzar could only repent and turn to the Lord and may the Lord have mercy on him. So let's see if Belshazzar repented. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, medium Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one king named Balthazar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. Real quick, and we keep uh, moving on. Hearing the Lord's, uh, the king's outcry, uh, the queen, more than likely his mommy, came in to help him. So clearly she's not invited to the party. She's not participating in stuff like this. Maybe she's too old to deal with, with drunken parties like this. So she comes in and she says, hey, don't freak out, baby. Uh, there's another man. His name is Daniel. He'll fix these problems for you. But what we have to understand is Daniel's an old man by now. Clearly, this King Belshazzar didn't use Daniel, which means Daniel was in retirement. And now his mommy is telling him, hey, bring Daniel out of retirement. Let's see if he can help you out. Let's move on and read verse 13. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and the mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I've heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you'll be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty... The Most High God gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone and he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was disposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which does not see or hear or understand. You've not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he has sent the hand and his writing was inscribed. And so what we see in the text, not only does the Lord see his sin, confront his sin, but the third thing, if you're taking notes, we see how the Lord exposes his sin and exposes our sin. I find it fascinating that instead of just Daniel giving the interpretation of the handwriting, the Lord really uses Daniel to expose the sin of Belshazzar. Daniel goes ahead and and retells the story. Hey, remember 
your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, the most high God who is sovereign over everyone, he gave the power and the kingdom to Nebuchadnezzar. And he ruled and he reigned and he could do whatever he wanted to. But he continued in his arrogance. He continued in his pride. He refused to acknowledge the Most High God. He stood on top of his palace and he said, What a wonderful kingdom. Look all that I've done with my very own hands. And the Lord humbled him. The Lord, in a sense, turned him into a beast where he lived like a wild animal, eating grass like a cattle. And he lived in those conditions until he humbled himself and he looked up and he recognized that the God Most High is ruler over everything. And Daniel's like, you know this. You were alive during that time. Why did you not learn from it? And yet what you've done is you continued in your arrogance. You continued in your pride and you are found guilty and you will be judged. And so as the Lord exposes Belshazzar's sin, as the Lord even exposes our sin, we need to be reminded of two truths and we kind of see it in the text. The first truth as the Lord exposes our sin is this, who God is. And who is God? What does Daniel tell us about who God is? He's the most high God. He is sovereign. He is the one who holds our life breath in his hands. And he is the one who controls the whole course of our lives. That's the very first truth. The second truth is this, who we are. And who are we? We're simply in the hands of the Most High God. He holds our lives. He controls our lives. Whether we want to acknowledge Him or not, it doesn't change the fact of who God is. James even says in James 4.15, we're like a vapor. Daniel says, we're a life breath. <sighs> That's what you are over it. And yet we are in the Lord's hands. Now, think about those two truths, who God is and who we are. Terrifying and gracious. Terrifying in a sense that you are in control of nothing. You're sovereign over nothing. You have no power. Your, your life is in the hands of God. If your life is over, there's nothing you can do about it. That's terrifying. And yet gracious. He is sovereign. He is in control. He doesn't always at times gives me what I deserve. He is patient with me. He is kind with me. Like, I think even in our story, like how gracious and kind was the Lord to Belshazzar? I wouldn't even give him the writing on the wall. I would just snap my finger and poof, your life is over, you knucklehead. And yet, what does the Lord do? The Lord warns him. This is what's going to happen. The Lord confronts him and exposes him. The fact that Daniel gives him a whole message, you fool, why did you not learn from the past? Why are you continuing in your arrogance and your pride? Like what a gracious warning to the king who should have humbled himself. And yet that's what the Lord does when he exposes our sin. It's terrifying. And yet it is gracious at the same time. And as we are going to continue to see in our story, and I'm almost done, we see how the Lord sees our sin, confronts our sin, exposes our sin. And the last truth that we're going to see in our text, if you're taking notes, is that the Lord deals with our sin. He deals with it. Look, look at the interpretation of the inscription on the wall. Look at verse 25. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mena, mena, teko, parson. And this is the interpretation of the message. Mena means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekal means you have been weighed on the balance and found 
deficient. Perez means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order. They clothed Daniel in purple, placed gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And look at verse 30. What happened? That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. The writing was on the wall. Uh, Real quick, and then we'll move on. The writing originally was in Aramaic. And this writing had no vowels and were letters that ran consecutively. Okay, so even think about our language. Think about between no spaces between words and no vowels. Trying to decipher where is the break. So that's what Daniel had to do. He had to figure out where is the appropriate break, the division of the different words. And so these four words that were the inscription on on the wall in English reads, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. In the interpretation in verse 26 and uh, 28, uh, Daniel tells the king, God is closing the book on you. Your chapter is over. Your story is coming to an end because God had measured and he had weighed you. And I love this. He found you to be lightweight and deficient. You think you're a heavy pants. Nope, you're not. You challenged the most high God, you lost. You crossed the line, the gig is up. The day of reckoning has come. You've shown no repentance, and your time is up. Your kingdom will be taken, and your kingdom will be divided among the Medes and the Persians. And we read in verse 30, that night, in other words, God's judgment was swift. Personally for us, as the Lord is dealing with our sins. There's both a warning and there's a promise. In in Proverbs 29, verse 1, it says, One who becomes stiff-necked after many reprimands will be shattered instantly beyond recovery. That's the warning. You continue in your sin. You continue to bow down to the idols. You continue to challenge the Most High God after many warnings, after many pleadings of the Lord confronting your sin and exposing your sin. He's going to deal with your sin and it's going to end in destruction. That's the warning. But then there's also a promise. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22 to 26, it says, How long, inexperienced one, will you love ignorance? How long will you mockers enjoy mocking and your fools hate knowledge? In other words, how long are you going to continue in your rebellion and ignoring God and rejecting God? And and look at this promise. The, The promise is, if you respond to my warning, then I will pour out my spirit on you and teach you my words. If you turn from your ways, what is the Lord going to do? He will put His Spirit in you. God will be dwelling in you. He will place His law in you. He will teach you His Word. That's the promise. But then the warning continues. But since I called out, I called you out and you refused, extended my hand and no one paid attention since you neglected all of my counsel and did not accept my correction. I in turn will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. In other words, there's no way out of it. You are as good as done. Man, what a depressing message. Let's look to application here. Well, what can we learn from this? What can we apply to our lives? I think as we, as we, as we look at this, one of the things we, we know for sure that we see in our text is that the Lord is faithful in keeping His promises. He has ordained the events of the past and He's direct the future towards His appointed end. 
He remains faithful. God's people, what did they do? They rebelled against God, and what did God tell them that's going to happen? You'll be sent into exile. And what happened? They're sent into exile. The Lord is faithful in keeping his promise. And yet for some unknown reason, he promises his people, but you will not be in exile forever, for I will destroy Babylon and your exile will cease. And what do we see in our text? The Lord destroyed Babylon the great. The Lord confronted Belshazzar's sin, exposed his sin, dealt with his sin. And what did he say is going to happen? Your, king, your life will end, your kingdom will be taken, it will be divided. And what happened? The Lord is faithful in keeping his promises. So, so the very first thing we can learn about our God in our text is that the Lord is faithful in keeping his promises. If he promises destruction, what's going to happen? Destruction. If he promises deliverance, what's going to happen? Deliverance. He is faithful. I think the second thing that we can learn, and, may, and, and, and I hope we can learn from this, it's better to learn from the consequences of somebody else's foolishness than you yourself continue in that foolishness and you experience the very consequences of your foolishness. In other words, Belshazzar learned from King Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be the fool that repeats that mistake. And what did he do? He repeated it. This story, I think Paul in 2 Corinthians tells the church in Corinth, hey, the reason why we have all these stories in the past is so that we can remember and learn from their mistakes. The reason why we have this story is not only does it show us God's faithfulness and who he is and who we are, but so that we can learn. Let us not continue in our sin. The Lord sees it, he will confront it, he will expose it, and he will deal with it. You have no chance. Do not make the same mistake. And the last final application, and maybe that will give us hope. If the Lord sees your sin, if the Lord confronts it, if the Lord exposes it and deals with it, where do you turn to? Where do you go to? His name is Jesus. That is our only hope. Paul says this in, in Ephesians. It's one of my favorite passages. Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 5. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of the world, according to the ruler of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them, carrying out our fleshly desires, uh, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. In other words, what is Paul saying? We were dead in our sins. We carry out the inclinations and the passions of our flesh and our thought. We continued in our sin and the Lord confronted it and exposed it. And we were just like everybody else. Technically, it should be game over. And yet in verse 5, he says, But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love he had for us, made us alive in Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved by grace. In other words, I don't know if I have to do much interpretation. You were Belshazzar. Your sins were exposed. You were weighed. 
You came up lightweighted, deficient, game over. Your life should be over. The only thing you deserved was death and destruction and judgment. But somehow God in his mercy because of his great love he had for you, which I don't know why, did not give you what you deserve. But he made you alive in Christ even though you were dead. He made you alive. How, how did the Lord make you alive in Christ? Paul says in 2 Corinthians, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. In other words, what was happening is this great exchange, your sin and your wickedness and your defiance against the holy God that deserved judgment and wrath was somehow exchanged with Jesus and his perfect righteousness and his perfect life that he lived. Your sin for his righteousness, he took your judgment, and your wrath upon himself. In exchange, you received his righteousness, and God did not give you what you deserve, but somehow accepted you, adopted you into his family, not because of anything you've done. You were dead in your sins, but all because of what Christ has done. That's how he made you alive. And that's why Paul says at the end of verse 5, even though you were dead in your sins, you are saved by grace. In other words, it's nothing that you've done. You were dead. So as the Lord, hear the warning, he sees your sin. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows what you've done and he even knows what you're going to do. And in the terrifying and gracious moment, He's confronting it. He's not going to leave it alone. He's going to expose it. In other words, he's going to bring it out to light. And he's going to deal with it one way or another, either your destruction or Jesus' death. And the Lord is calling you to humble yourself to turn from your sin and to receive this gift of salvation by faith, believing and trusting in him. What a wonderful message that God does not give us what we deserve, but he gave his son. And for the believer, if you are in Christ, what an encouraging message that he dealt with your sin in the personal work of Jesus Christ. Let, 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 let's just talk to the believer. If you're a Christian, how many times do you feel defeated by your own sin? You, you feel like a hypocrite. You feel like the things you don't want to do, you end up doing. And yet, what's your hope in the midst of it? that the Lord graciously confronts it and exposes it in your self-justification. He calls it like it is, and he has already dealt with it. He's not saying, hey, you better clean up your act. You better get yourself together. You better deal with your own sin. No, it's already done with. So the call that you have is to go back to the cross of Christ and saying, even though in my struggle with sin, the Lord is gracious and confronting it and exposing it, and I can praise the Lord that he's dealt with it in the person of Jesus Christ that gives me the confidence to keep fighting and put to death the sinful desires that I find in myself and to put on the Christ-likeness character of Christ. And yet I have his Holy Spirit to empower me and to strengthen me. And I can learn from these foolish messages of Belshazzar and turn to him and humble myself. And for the non-believer, like don't be like Belshazzar that turns to religion, a.k.a. turns to everybody but God. Even turns to himself and the people around him. You will find yourself falling short. It will be deficient it is lightweight because what the lord is doing in his gracious act is showing how helpless and useless you are so that you can finally turn to him and say i need a savior i need someone who can deal with my sin and not give me what we des what i deserve and his name is jesus repent and turn to him let, let me pray for us and then we get to communion Lord, thank you 
that you do in your graciousness sees our see our sin confront it expose it and you deal with it lord and if we think about it what a terrifying thing and yet what a gracious thing help us to see it for what it is help us to turn to you help us to trust you help us to look to you lord you know everybody in this room you know the things we put our hope in can you expose it for what it is that if it's not in you everything else is just hopeless and useless can you show us we have nowhere else to turn but to you and can you help us to cling to you trust in you cry out to you This morning, um, I just want to give you some time to, to maybe cry out to the Lord. Maybe this morning the Lord is confronting your sin and exposing it for what it is. And you feel helpless, hopeless, and useless. It's a terrifying moment and a gracious moment because what the Lord is saying is turn to me. Would you turn to him this morning? Will you trust him? Surrender your life to Christ? Will you cling to the cross believing that Jesus dealt with your sin, paid for it in full, and God did not give you what you deserve? And because of that, you can now live for him because you belong to him. Your life is no longer your own, but you belong to him. And so in your own words, just ask the Lord, forgive me, save me, I need you. And the good news is he will do the work. He will transform you and make you new. And for the Christian, if you're discouraged in your sin, the call is the same. <laughs> Turn to Christ. Remember what he's done for you. Trust him. Rest in him, cling to him. We can freely confess our sin, knowing that there's forgiveness, knowing that our sin has been dealt with on the cross. As we get to the table, here's what this table reminds us of this morning. In our struggle with sin, the Lord has dealt with it on the cross. Jesus gave us his body and has shed his blood. It is by his blood that he's redeemed us, he's bought us, he's washed our sins away, he's made us new. And because of his work on the cross that we turn to, that we trust in, that we look to, we, in a sense, get to receive it. That's why you're receiving the elements. You are receiving it with open hands saying, thank you for the body that was given to me. Thank you for the blood that was shed to me. I receive it. I'm eating it. I'm drinking it. Because by eating it and drinking it, it is ministering to my senses, reminding me of who Christ is and what he's done for me. It helps us fix our eyes on Jesus. And so as we distribute these elements, think about how the Lord has dealt with your sins, not in a way that you deserved. You deserve destruction, but instead Jesus died for you. Meditate on that truth. Thank the Lord for his gift and receive it with gladness and joy and by faith. Feasting on Jesus, trusting in Jesus, resting in Jesus. And this morning, if you're not a believer, if you've not surrendered your life to Christ, then just simply pass these elements. It doesn't mean anything to you. And we don't want you to do something you don't believe in doing. But if this morning, if you've surrendered your life, then see this as symbolically of receiving Christ. Again, this doesn't mean anything. These are just symbolisms with a powerful message.
of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So let's go ahead and distribute these elements and let's meditate on how Christ has dealt with our sins on the cross. What a wonderful, precious gift that the Lord did not give us what we deserve. We did not die the death we deserved or face the destruction we deserved, but instead, Jesus died in our place, paid for our sins in full. His body was given to you. Eat it in remembrance and thanksgiving of him. His blood was shed for you. Your sins are washed away as white as snow. A new covenant has been established because of his precious blood. Drink it in remembrance of him. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We are so grateful for you and encouraged by you that we can come and freely confess our sins. We don't have to walk around with guilt and shame. We don't have to pretend to be somebody we're not. We don't have to run away from you. You have dealt with our sins through your son, Jesus Christ. The penalty has been paid for. The wrath has been satisfied. We can delight in you. We can freely confess our sins knowing there's forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for that. And so, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to not turn to ourselves, but to trust in you, to rest in you, to cling to the cross where the work is finished, where we've been accepted. And Lord, as we find ourselves pursuing holiness, when we find ourselves struggling with our sins, Lord, we can fight our sins with a boldness and our confidence because we've been set free, we've been delivered, and we've been forgiven. May we every day receive it as we trust in you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we praise our wonderful Savior?